0: Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mpchurch and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Have you ever stopped to consider how absolutely crazy The Christian claim, the claim of the Bible is that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, just take a moment, just take a moment and just hit pause on your life and everything going on and just think about that for a moment. The central claim of the Christian faith of the Bible is that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what the Apostle Paul has to say about it. He says to them, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you will still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. He goes on to say, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures say. Paul goes on to say he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul goes on to say uh, further down in this chapter, Let's pick it up in verse 13. For if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all other preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. Paul finishes this thought by saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Here's the, uh, the scandalous, insane claim of the Christian faith. Everything, everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This whole Bible hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection did not happen, everything, Paul says, is a waste. There is no reason to believe what you've been believing. There's no reason to investigate Christianity any further. There's no reason to consider the claims of Christ. There's no reason for the cross. There's no reason for any of it. If the resurrection did not happen, it is all gone up in smoke. This is the, the incredible claim of Christianity and of uh, the life of Jesus. Everything that he came and did, everything found in scripture hangs on this one thing. There is no other world religion, no major world religion that makes such a claim and hangs everything on one thing, as this claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're gonna just talk about that a little bit today because uh, I believe it's important for us to understand that we can believe in Jesus, we can trust in him, we can trust in who he was, what he said and what he did, but we also need to understand what the, the resurrection means, what the cross and resurrection means and why it's important for our life today. So we're gonna go on a bit of a journey together, a brief investigation of the claims of Jesus, the claims of scripture, and why it matters for our life today. So why would we even believe in Jesus anyway? One of the 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 reasons we can, and, and this is not uh, in and of itself the all sufficient reason, but one of the reasons is that Jesus himself transcends all other religious figures, Jesus is the only spiritual figure that every religion wants to claim a piece of for their own. For instance, in Islam, they believe that Jesus was virgin-born, sinless, miracle-working prophet. Not God, but prophet. Uh, in Buddhism, they believe that Jesus was enlightened. In the Hindu religion, they believe that Jesus was an avatar. In New Age uh, Worldview. They believe that Jesus is a spiritual guru. There's no one else who's ever lived that has had the global historical impact that Jesus has on every other world religion, on every faith, on every culture for thousands and thousands of years. There's another reason that we can believe in Jesus, in who he was, because there is good historical evidence for Jesus that he was God in human flesh. This is what, uh, what we hang the historicity of Jesus on. And there are virtually no scholars within Christianity or outside of Christianity who would argue the historical um, historicity of Jesus Christ as a person. There's virtually none worth any of their salt who would actually argue that Jesus never, in fact, lived. N.T. Wright says this, I've taken it for granted that Jesus of Nazareth existed against people who try from time to time to deny it. It would be easier, frankly, to believe that Tiberius Caesar Jesus's contemporary was a figment of the imagination than to believe that there never was such a person as Jesus. We can trust that Jesus was a real historical person. Almost everyone would attest to that fact inside and outside the church. At least 10 writers from outside the Bible around the time of Jesus or just after mentioned Him by name. They weren't friends of Christianity. Often these were people who actually opposed Christianity. First century Jewish and Roman historians, people like Tacitus, um, we find writing in the Babylonian Talmud about Jesus and the Jewish historian Josephus, just to name a few. So from outside of Scripture, we see that there is evidence for the historical life of Jesus. And from inside scripture, we have the four gospels primarily as a, as a historiograph of Jesus's life. And I just wanna say briefly, we're not gonna to touch into this. I mean, many scholars have spent literally their life's work studying this and areas of textual criticism and all of these things. But when we hold the gospels, up to other writing from antiquity, from its same period, and apply the same principles for establishing their authenticity or their truthfulness, the gospel fares extremely well. When we apply the same measuring stick to the gospels that are found for other writings um, outside of scripture around the same time, the gospels actually fare very well. So we can trust the historical accuracy of the Gospels themselves. Um, just a couple of points about that. Uh, the discrepancies that we find in the four Gospels are, are actually not an indicator of their um their their failure to actually represent history accurately. This is what scholars believe the discrepancies even found, the minor ones found in the gospels do. They make no attempt to harmonize all of the information and details. This is actually by scholars and experts seen as a testimony to their authenticity. It wasn't that the gospel writers got together and sat down to try and perfectly craft their stories. They make no attempt between the four gospels to harmonize minuscule little details. Um, The gospels included material that cast Jesus in a negative light. Like if you're writing a story, um, a fantasy story or an epic about a hero, do you include that hero crying in the garden before he's supposed to go uh, offer himself as a sacrifice for mankind. um, Jesus was seen in the Gospels to, um, you know, claim to be God, but then when asked questions that God would know, he would say, I don't have the answer for that. Only God knows that. And if you were trying to build this rock-solid, ironclad case for Jesus, if you were manufacturing that, you would never cast the hero of the story in negative light like the Gospels do. And so historians and scholars actually believe that the fact that the biblical writers included content like that was actually um, authenticating their truthfulness. The biblical writers and the Gospel writers include many difficult passages that are just frankly hard to understand or confusing or don't make sense to us today. One of the other ones is that they identified women as eyewitness accounts, and in a patriarchal society in biblical times, um, noting that it was women who discovered the empty tomb and women who were key players in the life of Jesus and in his ministry would have had no, no value. They would never recognize in that time uh, women as sufficient to be eyewitnesses for these important events, none of the men in that time period would have actually recognized that as authoritative. So if the gospel writers were trying to craft something disingenuously for that first century um, crowd, they would never include the female eyewitness accounts of um, the resurrection of Christ. Um, they actually challenge readers within the gospels, they challenge readers to check history for themselves. And they include more than 30 names of historically verified people from outside of scripture. So it's interesting that the writers of the gospels use specific names of specific people. And it's not just for information's sake, their expectation would have been, you know, um, that the people they're writing to would be able to confer with the people that they're giving information about. Like go and talk to that person and uh, see if what I'm telling you is is true and is accurate and is right. So the biblical writers aren't trying, they're not using fictitious names, they're not, um, you know, creating fictitious scenarios, they're using real names of real people that those Uh, people around them would able be able to go and verify with. So we can trust that Jesus was a real person, that what the Bible records about him is historically accurate. And when compared with the same lens and given the same testing measurements as other writings from its same period, the Bible actually sustains any critique against it and measures up extremely well. What does the Bible say about not only Jesus' historicity and that he lived, but his claim to be God? You know, many people um, who are skeptics or atheists or want to undermine or attack Christianity uh, use this argument that Jesus himself never claimed to be God and that therefore he is not God. But Paul believed that Jesus was God. Paul was responsible for writing uh the bulk of the New Testament. He believed that Jesus was God, and in Paul's letters, which came out before the Gospels around 50 AD in the 50s, Paul attests to um, that message of Jesus' that Jesus himself was God. In Colossians 1.19, Paul says this, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. In Colossians two verse nine, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. uh, In the ESV, it says it this way, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter one, verse two and three says this, and now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance and through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Back to Paul in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Paul says this, for through him, that's Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So for a Jew like Paul, creational monotheism was an essential doctrine. For a Jew like Paul, the, uh, the, the doctrinal truth that God is one, there is only one God, and that God created the whole universe was essential. That was like the linchpin theological or doctrinal belief of Jews in Paul's day and especially of Paul. So for Paul to give Jesus titles and a role in creational work was to give Jesus something that was assigned to God alone. Paul knew exactly what he was doing when he was writing these things. Paul's, um, the titles that he gives to Jesus and Jesus's role in the creation of the universe are a direct statement from Paul that he believed Jesus was God. Paul and the early Christians used the same Greek word, Kyrios, that is reserved only for the God of Israel. And this term is the term that occurs in the Greek Old Testament. So the Old Testament that Paul and his contemporaries would have been reading, this word Kyrios occurred over 9,000 times. And in over 6,000 of those 9,000 occurrences, it is used for the proper name of God, Yahweh. Um, This is essential for us to understand that Paul is interchanging the same proper name for God found in the scriptures, found in the scriptures that he's studied since uh, being a young child. He's using the same name and applying it to Jesus. This is seen in examples like, in contrast, like Deuteronomy 6, verse four, where uh, it says, "'Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one.'" Okay, so that word for Lord is Kyrios, and it's the same one that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 8, verse six, when he says, "'But for us there is one God, the Father, "'by whom all things were created, and for whom we live.'" Okay, so Paul is like throwing back there to to Deuteronomy 6, 4 and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. So that word for Lord is the same one he uses for God, all right? So Paul is connecting these ideas, and Paul was intentionally reshaping Jewish monotheism around Jesus. And you can see other passages like Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, and Isaiah 45, 23. So there is no doubt in Paul's writing, all right, the writing that we find from Paul in the New Testament, there's no doubt that in the usage of the New Testament writers, the title Lord is regarded as the title used of God in the Old Testament and now applied to Jesus. That's from I, Howard Marshall, in the book, The Origins of New Testament Christology. We can also find references for this in Romans 3.30, Galatians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, Galatians 3.20, Ephesians 4.6, and 1 Thessalonians 1.9. So not only can we trust the historicity, the accounts historically of the gospels, but we can trust that Jesus's claim to be God was uh, actually um, something that Paul agreed with. Paul taught his followers, he taught the churches that Jesus was not just a prophet, Jesus was not just a good moral teacher, Jesus was not just a spiritual guru, and he wasn't just a healer, that Jesus himself was equal to and was God. Paul reshaped the idea of Jewish monotheism to include Jesus as God. The big question is, did Jesus himself claim to be God? So Paul thinks that he is, all right, but did Jesus actually think that he was? When we dive into the Gospels, we see that Jesus made repeated claims to be both God and That was made both overtly and subversively. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis offers us um, one of the most quoted portions of that book. This is what C.S. Lewis said about Jesus. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense, I love C.S. Lewis, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not attend, intend to. So why should we believe Jesus is God if Jesus himself never actually said those words in that exact string of a sentence? This is what Mark Clark says about this, I love this, in his book, The Problem of Jesus. I'm often asked, why should you believe Jesus was God if he never said the words, I am God? I respond that the question is based on a mistaken assumption that Jesus would have talked like thus and said things in a way that satisfy our ways of thinking and determining truth. Yet if he had done so, his meaning would have been missed by his immediate audience of first century Jews. Mark continues, so while it is true that Jesus didn't put those three words in that exact order, it's also irrelevant. In the end, Jesus said even more than that. He made his claim to be God through the words and methods first century Jews would understand. We might miss Jesus's claims to be God, but that's our problem. That's amazing. The world Jesus lived in and breathed in responded right on cue. For this reason they all they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And you can see a reference from John 5:18 there. Jesus overtly and subversively made many claims about himself that would have been very clear to the audience around him in the first century. Just because it doesn't meet a certain criteria or logic or thought pattern that we have in the post-enlightenment sort of era of living, the scientific age, we cannot make demands of Jesus that were... um, uh, to satisfy our desire for him to speak in a way that makes sense to us. This is, these are just a few things that he claimed about himself. I'm not going to read them all because there's too many. He claimed that he invented the Sabbath and had the authority to update the rules about observing it. Mark 23 to 28, he put his own knowledge on par with God's. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. he claimed to be equal with God. John 5, 18, he claimed that whoever saw him saw the Father. John fourteen nine. when he was given the opportunity to correct people, treating him as if he were God, he didn't. Matthew 26, 63 to 65, John 19, um, 7 to 10, he claimed to have pre-existence, having descended from heaven, John 3, 13, and being older than even Abraham, John eight, fifty-six. He claimed to be replacing the temple, which was the place where God's presence resided and where forgiveness of sins occurred, John 2, 19 to 21. He claimed to have shared glory with God even before the world existed, John 17, 5. In no less than 39 times, he claimed to be a missionary from heaven. He claimed he would send his angels, Matthew 13, 41. Elsewhere in the Bible, angels are always referred to the angels of God, Luke 12, 8, and 9. He claimed authority to forgive sins, Mark 2, 5. And I could go on and on and on about the things that Jesus claimed of himself. In John 1.14, John, the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, said this, so the word became human, the word meaning Jesus, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father and one and only Son. So Jesus said things, either overtly or subversively, that claimed uh, he himself was God. Jesus also did things that actually uh, backed up his claim that he was God. He taught people to pray to him. John 14, 13 and 14, 15 verse 16 and 16 verse 24 and subsequently people like Stephen, Paul and John did pray to Jesus. He did nature miracles, including walking on water and turning water into wine, to communicate that he was God over nature. Who is this? It says in Mark four forty one. Even the wind and waves obey him. He claimed a number of titles that were used in the Old Testament scripture for Yahweh, Shepherd of Israel. John ten eleven to fourteen. I am the The formal name or title of god john eight fifty eight alpha and omega we find that in revelation one eight and twenty two thirteen almighty revelation one eight uh Light, John 8, 12, first and last, Revelation 1:17, Judge of all nations, Matthew 25, 31, and bridegroom. He received worship from people. Again, Jesus as a first century Jew would have known as well as anyone that God alone was to be worshiped, but he received the worship of people. John 20, 28. In Uh, 5.23, 9.38, Luke 5.8, which was not something even angels would do, all right? We see that in Acts 14, 11 to 15, Revelation 22, 8 and 9. So he even places himself receiving worship above the angelic realm. Uh, We could go on and on and on. Mark Clark, I want to bring you back to him. We're going to hear a few quotes from here today. He said, instead of claiming He was God in a more direct and obvious sense that we as modern people prefer. Jesus cast himself as God in a very specific way. He aligned himself with the story of God, the one known and taught for generations by the Jewish people. Jesus wasn't making an abstract claim to be God. He positioned himself as the center of Israel's concept of the one true God and said, I am that God. Jesus claimed divinity in every way that mattered and made sense to the first century Jewish world. So not only can we trust the historicity of the Bible and of the the Gospels especially, we uh, know that Paul taught that Jesus was God, and we see here that not only did Jesus teach himself that he was God. Not only did he say things directly and indirectly that spoke to that, he did things that only God could do. And he did it in a way that his first century Jewish audience would have actually fully understood, even if we don't fully grasp it today. We can trust in the historicity of Jesus. We can know that Jesus claimed to be God and he backed it up. With evidentiary miracles and the way that he lived, so we need to move then on to the crucifixion of Jesus. The description from the gospels—we're now coming to sort of the the apex moments of all of history, all of human history, all of created history. Uh, can we trust in the stories of the crucifixion? Let's just. Put this one to bed really quickly. There's virtually no doubt, virtually no doubt from a historical perspective inside and outside of the church. People friendly to Christianity and skeptics and fierce opponents to it all agree that historically Jesus was a real person who lived and he was crucified in the exact manner and detail that the gospels lay out for us. Just really quickly, why was he crucified? I'm not talking about this from a theological sense just yet. Jesus was executed as a rebel who was a rebel against the Roman Empire because of his kingdom message. So from the uh, perspective of the Roman Empire, Jesus was being executed because of his kingdom message Jesus was a threat to the Roman Empire because Jesus taught that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he had come to reestablish the kingdom rule and reign of God on the earth. And therefore that meant that Caesar was not Lord and God and king. So Jesus was crucified from a Roman perspective because he was seen as a threat to the empire and a rebel against the Roman empire. From a Jewish perspective, Jesus was crucified um, because of blasphemy. He was charged based on his actions in the temple and his claim to be the Messiah. Jesus from a Jewish perspective in his day was seen as a false prophet who was leading Israel astray. The religious leaders were not friendly toward Jesus. They believed that his claims about who he was, the things that he did, made him a false prophet who was leading Israel astray. And John, the apostle John, gives us a window into the motivations, the heart issues behind the Jewish leaders as they are um, uh, positioning him to be crucified. The leaders and the Pharisees called the high Council together. this is in John 11. "What are we going to do?" they say. "This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation." So the Jewish leaders believed that Jesus was a false prophet leading people astray and that ultimately that would undermine their whole faith system, their whole faith structure, their whole national identity, their whole religious identity. That's why from a human perspective, Jesus was crucified. So what then does the cross actually mean? The cross is now, we're coming to the central Kind of portion of the biblical story, and the whole message of Jesus, the cross. Um, you know, without it, Jesus is just another good moral teacher. He's just another. You know, uh, he's just another saint. He's just another mystic or prophet or miracle worker. But without the cross, Jesus solved nothing. Solved nothing. The cross itself changes how we relate to God. Mark Driscoll says it this way in a a brilliant way that I could never say. He said, the cross is like a jewel, brilliant in the way it sparkles from many different angles. And Mark Driscoll summarizes the different things the cross accomplishes and all of these Uh, have deep meaning in the history of the church. So the cross accomplishes uh, Jesus as the victor, Christus victor, Jesus defeating Satan and demons. The cross accomplished redemption. The cross buys us back from the slavery of sin and death. The cross accomplished new covenant sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice and forgiveness and forgives our sins, so we are forgiven and forgive others. The cross accomplished the gift of righteousness. This is the accomplishment of Christ, what he did as a gift that gets applied to us. The cross accomplished justification. Because of Jesus's work, we are now declared righteous in the law court of God. This is what the cross accomplishes. The cross accomplishes something called propitiation, which means that the cross satisfied God's wrath and thus turns his relationship to us into one not of anger and wrath, but of favor. The cross accomplished something else. That's another big word that we don't use in English, but it's called expiation. That's Jesus's sacrifice, not only for our Sins and our own forgiveness, but also the sins that have been done to us. So the cross not only covers the sin that we commit, but it covers every heinous and horrendous act of sin done against us. The cross accomplishes Christus exemplar. It's our example for how to actually live. I want to just touch really briefly on a couple of these um, just so that we have a little bit of a deeper understanding, the atonement for sin, the, the cross accomplishes atonement. In Matthew uh, twenty-seven forty-five, in the ESV, it says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Historians tell us, that it was at the ninth hour on the day of Passover when the Jews would actually get together. So on the ninth hour of the day of Passover, when the Jews would get together, they'd gather up and make sacrifices for the atonement of sin. And at that very hour, Jesus is accomplishing atonement on the cross. The gospel writers are not vague about this. They're not mysterious about this. They want us to see, and even Luke, in drawing these connections, wants us to see the ultimate and final sacrifice that Jesus was for our sins. It's why at that moment when he said it's finished, the veil was torn in two and that which separated us from God, our sins and and sinful nature was torn in two and Jesus there made atonement for our sin in Hebrews 9 It says this, but now once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ offered for once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Jesus, um, on the cross, we don't just see atonement for sin, but Jesus becomes our substitute, Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came into this world for a reason, to offer himself as a substitutionary ransom, a sacrificial ransom for us. The cross is also about the victory of God. It brings us right back to Genesis 3.15. And after Adam and Eve had sinned, God came down and he spoke to the serpent and he said, um, one day, out of humanity, I will raise someone up and you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. In Colossians 2.14, Paul says he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, through what Jesus did on the cross, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them in the cross. The cross was the accomplishment of everything that Jesus had promised way back to Adam and Eve. It was the fulfillment of what he had promised in Genesis Three. And lastly in here, I wanna talk about this word propitiation because it's not a word we use every day and we can find that word in Romans 3.25 and Hebrews 2.17 and 1 John 2.2 and 4.10. But that word propitiation means a sacrifice for our sin. So that's half of it. And that's sort of the beneficiary part that we receive, that Christ was a sacrifice for our sin. But the other side of this coin is is that propitiation means something that satisfies the wrath or anger of God and turns it from anger into favor. When the cross is described with that word propitiation, it actually uh, tells us that God was angry because of sin and that anger needed to be satisfied. And this is something that, especially in our culture today, right now we push against this strongly. We rail against this. We resist the idea that somehow we're accountable to God. And we resist the idea that in our very nature, without God, without the work of Jesus, we resist the idea that we are evil and fallen and sinful by our nature. We insist at... Worse, that we are naive or imperfect, but not sinful or not evil or in any way um, should be the object of God's anger and frustration. And the reality is, is that it's actually the work of sin in the world that causes God anger and frustration. It's the evil in the world that comes through the influence of the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen realm but we resist this with everything in us that, you know, we're not inherently evil or sinful. We're just naive or imperfect, but there's nothing that God really needs to deal with us in this way. And Paul said in Ephesians two, one to three, he lays out this argument, the reality that um, our nature is sinful. And apart from what Jesus has done, it will always actually rail against God. Jesus said in Matthew 5 or 15:19 that evil doesn't come from the external places in our life that evil actually springs up from our heart, it's in us innately. So we're born into sin, as David said in Psalm 51, "From the time my mother conceived me, I was born." with a sinful nature, this is the evil that Jesus says springs up out of our heart that produces anger and malice and rage and immorality and impurity and uh, destructive behaviors and ideas and tendencies. The truth is that God's anger against sin and evil is justified because it's actually fueled from God's love for what is right and good and beautiful. These are the things that make him so angry over the destructive force of sin in the world and in our lives. You know, we don't want to allow God to stamp out injustice, the injustice of evil and sin, but the truth is that we all deal with anger over injustice. We're actually wired because we're wired and made in the image of God. We're wired to see injustice and be angry about it, to have arguments and fights and to defend the helpless and the widows and the poor and the orphan and the marginalized. We're wired in our DNA from God to hate Injustice. I remember as a, you know, a 19 year old on my first ever international trip, I went to Egypt for a summer and was serving in short term mission. And one of our assignments was in an orphanage in a little town in southern Egypt. And, and we got into this orphanage and right away, the first day that we were there, this little boy caught my attention and he caught my attention because his face was burned off, half of his head was so severely burnt there was no hair left and his face was disfigured and burnt off and I came to learn that he was burnt in a fire when he was a baby and because he was burnt, his parents deemed him unsuitable for life in their family. They actually threw him out onto the street. They abandoned him in a garbage pile on the street because of the disfiguring of his face. And in that moment, my heart burned with injustice. What kind of person would do that thing? And in the same way you've seen it a thousand times, your heart burning and angry at the injustice you see in the world. And this, if we as sinful people who have such a limited perspective are stirred with this kind of anger. How much more for a God who sees and understands all things and sees the devastating consequences of evil and sin, the work of the devil on the earth in his good creation that was perfect and beautiful. How much more anger would God have at the cost and consequence of sin as people hurt themselves and hurt other people. God's anger over sin is justified. His injustice over evil and sin is justified. This is what Mark Clark says about this. This deep desire for justice to be done simmers in all of us. It comes from being made in God's image. We get angry when we see injustice because God gets angry when he sees injustice. If your kid gets bullied or made fun of at school, what do you do? You demand justice. You want blood, and that's you. With all of your imperfect knowledge, imagine what it's like for God who can see our full intent and knows all the minute details of our selfish hearts. The more you love someone, the angrier you're going to be when you see them hurt themselves or others. Anger and wrath are not the opposite of love. Don't buy into that lie from our culture. Anger and wrath are not the opposite of love. Indifference is. God sees the way the world is and it angers him. If he wasn't filled with love and goodness, he wouldn't care. I was wiping my nose there. I'll read that for you again. God sees the way the world is, and it angers him. If he wasn't filled with love and goodness, he wouldn't care. And if he wasn't angry at the state of the world, he wouldn't be worth worshiping either. On the cross, this is the the power of the story of the Bible, the power of what happened on the cross, God himself satisfies his anger. God himself pays the debt. This word propitiation is powerful because not only are we the recipients, not of God's anger, but his favor through Jesus Christ, but God himself pays the debt. He doesn't demand that from you. He doesn't demand from you the debt that is owed from your own sin and selfishness and destructive thinking and behaving and acting and speaking. God Himself pays for it. This is the beauty that what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions, from all other ideas. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within that triunity of God, that family of God, that community of God, God sends his self, his only son, his own son, and sacrifice himself to satisfy his own wrath. We can't make sense of injustice. We can't make sense of Suffering and sorrow and death and pain—all of our rationalizing and our greatest thinking about it is woefully inadequate. The week after the events of 9/11 in New York City, Pastor Timothy Keller, who leads a church in Manhattan, was preaching the week after 9/11. His church went from 2,000 the week before to 5,000 as it was flooded with people trying to figure out what was happening. Timothy Keller was preaching from John 11, the story of Lazarus, and he says this, I love this. He says that Jesus was deeply moved when he came to the tomb. This is John 11:38, 38, and Keller explained this. The translators are afraid. When they use that term, deeply moved, they're afraid. The Greek word here means to roar or snort with anger like an animal, like a lion, like a bull. So the best translation, Keller says, would be bellowing with anger. He came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. That must mean, Keller says, at least that his nostrils flared with fury. It might mean he was yelling. Jesus was filled with anger at the death and consequence of sin and injustice, the work of the devil in his friend Lazarus. When Jesus was confronted with death, it filled him with anger, his nostrils flared. He might've even been yelling in rage at the consequence of sin and the work of sin and death in the world. Jesus hates death. God hates sin. He hates death. He was yelling in anger at it. It angers him and it angers him when you're sinned against, it angers him when you're hurt, it angers him when you're suffering, it angers him when you experience the consequences of evil and injustice and sin and it angers him when you are on the receiving end of that and it angers him when you lash out and act in a way that's sinful toward others, when you are believing things in your heart that are sinful toward others, it angers God to see the destructive force of sin in the world. But what is Jesus's response? Timothy Keller continues on to this crowd of people who has been rocked by the events of 9-11. Jesus knows in 10 minutes or so, they're all gonna be rejoicing. He's quoting from verse 35 here that says, Jesus wept. You and I, when we go into these tragic situations, have no idea, Keller says. We go into these situations, we can't do a thing to undo it. Now, here's what's interesting. We say, boy, if we had, and fill in the blank. If you went into this knowing what you were about to do, knowing how you were going to turn everybody's weeping into joy in about 10 minutes, why would you weep? Why would Jesus weep if he knows at the sound of his voice with with one word that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Why would he weep? Keller continues. Why would he do that? Does it make psychological sense to you that if you knew you were about to turn everything around, you would be drawn down into grief? You would enter into the trauma and the pain that's in their hearts. Why would Jesus do that? The answer is because he is perfect love. He will not close his heart even for 10 minutes. He will not refuse to enter in. He doesn't say, well, there's not much use in entering into this grief. After all, we're going to be putting it away in a minute. Jesus goes in. The cross is not just about something God did for us. It actually reveals his very nature. The cross is not just purely functional, although it does serve a function. It's not just purely functional. The cross actually reveals to us the heart and the character and the nature and the love of God, the lengths to which he would go to enter in to our suffering and in our pain and in our brokenness. This is the, the power of what happened that weekend 2,000 years ago. Jesus fully entering into what it means to be broken humanity, incurring the, the anger and the wrath of God over the destruction of sin and the work of the devil. God entered into our sin and into our grief, and he enters into your grief today and into your suffering it was his plan, as Paul says in Ephesians, even before he made the world, God loved us. I love Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. I love this sentence. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Jesus did not just stay on the cross. Jesus was, um, he died on that cross, but he was buried. And then three days later, he resurrected the cross as a historically verified event that happened. We can trust what the gospels say about what Jesus said and what he taught. We can trust what Paul taught about Jesus. And this same Paul said, "If there is no resurrection, then all of it is useless. The resurrection of the dead, three days later, what we're celebrating today is the linchpin that everything hangs on. Just really quickly, a bit of the you know peripheral sort of reasons why we could believe in something as crazy as the resurrection. There's medical and historical evidence that Jesus did really die. Um, there's the evidence of his missing body. A body should have been easy to find, especially by the Romans who were very intent on finding it and the Jewish leaders. And there are many theories to try and explain this away, but none of them really hold any weight. There's evidence of the appearance as Paul is saying, look, he appeared to the apostles and he appeared to his followers. He appeared to 500 people at a time. He appeared to everyone and last of all, to me, there's the evidence of the empty tomb with the grave clothes. And lastly, the evidence of the rise of the early church. Why in the world? Ask yourself this. Why in the world? If they were covering this up as a hoax, if the resurrection didn't happen, if they didn't actually see Jesus resurrected and didn't believe that he was, why in the world would they give their lives for this very message? It makes no sense. It makes no sense to consider that they gave their lives. Here's what's happened to the original disciples. Andrew was cru- crucified in Patras, Greece. Nathaniel was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. James, the just, was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death. John died in exile on the island of Patmos. James, the greater, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Luke was hanged in Greece. Mark, dragged to death by a horse in Alexandria, Egypt. Matthew, killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Matthias, was stoned and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Philip was crucified in Phrygia and Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. These disciples would never have given their lives, would you do it, for a hoax that they had created, for a fantasy that they wanted to kind of disseminate around the world? The the One of the strongest evidences for the resurrection is what happened after in the lives of the disciples. It's what happens when we go from 12 followers of Jesus in the gospel narratives to over 33 million Jesus followers in 350 years. We've not seen explosive growth like that in the years since then. There's the evidence that Jesus is still changing lives today, that he is alive and he's appearing today to people. I love this. I want to leave you with this story. Darren Carlson, the founder and president of Training Leaders International, wrote an article that appeared on the Gospel Coalition website. You can go there and find it. And it's called When Muslims Dream of Jesus. And he tells stories there of Muslims who had encountered Jesus in dreams or whom Jesus had appeared to. Jesus is not dead. He's alive today. Here's a story I want to leave with you. There was a family on a boat with other migrants traveling from Turkey to Athens on the way they lost their seven-year-old daughter into the water. Everyone in the crowded boat was looking for her but couldn't find her. Suddenly, she appeared on the other side of the boat, saying over and over, a man who walked on water took me and brought me to the other side of the boat. The parents dismissed her words as silly. They thought she was crazy. Upon arriving on the island of Lesbos, they met a Christian who made a fire and offered to talk to them. That day, without knowing what had happened, he asked if they would like to know about a God who walked on water. They started crying, just like me. The man had never used that illustration in evangelism, but that morning he felt like he had to. They asked him, who are you? To which he replied, I am a Christian. They said, what do you mean walk on water? He opened the Bible and read the story of Jesus walking on the water. They continued crying. Our daughter fell off the boat, they explained. We thought she was crazy because she was dry on the other side. We didn't understand it, but she kept saying, it was a man who walked on water that took me to the other side. Jesus is alive today. Not only do we have the testimony of the disciples and the Christians in the first few hundred years, but we have story after story after story of Jesus powerfully transforming and interacting with our lives all over the world. They say in this study that 25% of the Muslims globally who come to Christ do so because Jesus appears to them in physical form or in a dream or in a vision. Christianity is not about our lives being unmade. It's about Jesus remaking and reshaping our lives as the resurrected shepherd king who said that the kingdom of God is not for some other time in the future. Yes, the fullness of that will be in in the future, but the kingdom of God is here and now it is at hand and his invitation is to take his hand, to follow his lead and walk into the kingdom of God today in the here and now, to follow the resurrected Jesus through our life. So what did Peter and Paul and the New Testament writers say? What do they say in Acts as they're preaching? They say, believe, repent, and be baptized. And this word for belief is more than just mentally agreeing to some truth or idea. We've been talking about this. More than just agreeing with what Jesus said, it's more than just acknowledging Uh, intellectually that he is Lord or saying that you believe the claims that he made, believing in him is actually uh, aligning yourself with the entire story of Israel through the Bible and throwing yourself into a trust life relationship with God defined by obedience, holiness, And love. The life of a follower of Jesus is one that is given over to Jesus. Not just a belief that he existed, but actually obeying him as king in your life. Jesus said, If anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Living under the Lordship of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus means that we actually go from just faith and intellectual agreement and belief into a life of faithfulness where we walk in obedience. To him. The invitation of Jesus for your life and my life, number one, is to repent. That word repent actually literally means to turn and go in the opposite direction. It's to turn away from, but it actually means to change the way we're thinking about our thinking. It's to change the way you think about your life about your priorities, about your values, about what's most important, about what you will or won't do. It's actually changing your thinking about who is actually in charge of your life, who is making the decisions and leading. Repentance is changing the way we think. And instead of seeing ourselves as the rulers of our own domain and our own kingdom and our own future, actually changing how we think about our very lives and following Jesus, belief is not just about ideas and agreement with them. It's not just about agreeing to doctrinal statements of Jesus. It's walking in obedience after the Good Shepherd. The question is, are you ready today? Are you willing today to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, but to give your life to Jesus? I hope you are. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at, at mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.